Let's ask God's blessing on his preached word. Would you pray with me? Father, one thing we know for certain, the day of the Lord is coming. The Son of Man will return. Help us, Father, to ready ourselves for that day. And may you use your preached word today to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if there's one thing that sours everything, it's death. I mean, you celebrate birthdays, but every birthday you celebrate brings you a bit closer to your death. Maybe you eat healthy and you work out to stay fit, but no matter what you do, your body is going to decline, weaken, and give out, and you're going to die. You enjoy the Vermont summer. I do. The long days, the hikes, the lake. Enjoy them because you can't enjoy them forever. Death is the period at the end of the sentence that everybody wishes wasn't there. It just is, though. It's an unescapable, sad, stubborn fact that nobody can get out of. Welcome to an encouraging Sunday morning at Redeeming Grace. Especially the graduates, congratulations, you're going to die. Here's the thing. It's actually not true. It is not the case that death will always have the last word. Jesus promises those who follow him a new body in a new world where sin and death will never ever come knocking at your door. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Let me just start, as you turn there, let me just start by acknowledging with you the obvious. This claim is outlandish. I mean, if a kid were to come up to you and say, you know, Mr. Brown, I'm going to have a new body and live forever. You'd pat him on the head and tell him to run off and keep living in his imaginary world, right? You just would. That's an outlandish claim. But if an adult told you that, you'd scoff at him. (laughs) Which brings us to our text. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This is not an innocent question. This is a scoffer's objection. Do you remember when the Sadducees came to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, uh, there was a woman. Uh, she, she married a man. Her husband died, so she married his brother. That was a thing in the Old Testament called Leverite marriage to raise up offspring. So so she married a man, he died, she married his brother, he died, and on and on it goes, Jesus. Uh, all seven brothers died. Hey, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose husband will she have? Or whose husband will she, whose wife will she be? 
Friends, they weren't asking that question genuinely. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. It was a challenge, and so Jesus rebuked them. He said, you neither know the Scriptures nor God. And it's actually the same here. Verse 12 tells us, some in the Corinthian church said there's no resurrection. This is a challenge. Paul rebukes them. Look at verse 36. You foolish person. This is a rebuke. But you know, this does give him the opportunity to show that the resurrection is both reasonable and glorious. And so just pause for a second before we get into our text. This claim that we will have new bodies in a new world, it is outlandish. But it is reasonable and it is glorious. And that's what Paul labors to persuade us of in verses 35 through 49. 35 through 49. He wants to convince you that this is both reasonable and glorious. Well, how is it reasonable? Look at verse 36. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. So what does he say? He's saying a resurrection body is not unreasonable. Look at seeds. Look at plants. A seed is sown into the ground as one thing, and then it springs up to life as another thing. You never start with an apple tree, do you? You start with an apple seed, and you sow that seed into the ground, and then that seed comes to life different. Well, so too it is with our resurrection bodies. Our bodies that is now are not the bodies that will be. Our body that is now is like a seed that when we die, it's sown into the ground, but one day will rise and be almost entirely different. And so this is not all on the, that unreasonable, is it? If God can do it with seeds, can he do it with our bodies? This is God we're talking about. So Paul explains more. Look at 39 through 41. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Very simply, Paul's teaching us here that there are different types of bodies and there are different types of glories. And you know this. The body of a human is different than the body of a fox. It's different than the body of a hawk. It's different than the body of a fish. There are just different types of bodies. And there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And there are different types of glories. And maybe a better word would be Splendor. So the, the splendor of the sun is one thing, and the splendor of the sun is different than the splendor of the moon. Even each star differs in splendor. One shines more brightly and twinkly than another. What's his point? 
it helps you understand the resurrection of the body. Will your body be different than your earthly body is in the resurrection? Yes. There are different types of flesh. This is reasonable. Will the splendor of your body in the resurrection be different than the splendor of your earthly body? Yes, there's different types of glory. This is reasonable. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. In other words, just as there are different types of bodies and different types of glories, so it is, in fact, with our earthly And heavenly bodies. Question for you. How will they be different? How will the glory of one differ from the glory of another? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Let's just double click on this for just a minute. What is sown is perishable. I saw a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his 20s the other day. Arnold Schwarzenegger is not in his 20s anymore. Uh, And you can tell. His body is decaying. And so is ours. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Genesis chapter 3. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. Psalm 90. Yet, what is raised is imperishable. Our muscles will never break down. Our eyesight will never grow dim. There will be no need for a wheelchair or a walker. As mind-blowing as it is, we will go from, from strength to strength. And our 250th year will be as vigorous as our 25th. And our 2500th year will be as vigorous as our 250th. Our bodies will never perish. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Dishonor here doesn't mean evil or bad. Our bodies now, they are not evil or bad. Dishonor here means lowly or unimpressive. Our our bodies here, as compared to our bodies there, are lowly and unimpressive, just as lowly and unimpressive as a seed is to a fully grown apple tree. Christ will transform our lowly bodies, Philippians 1.21, to be like his glorious body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We are weak. We get sick. We get injured. We have birth defects. We have cancer. Yet none of that will be the case in the resurrection body.
Cancer cells will never spread because there is no cancer. Memories will never fade because there is no Alzheimer's. Special needs children will need no more special care because what ails them will not exist. Our weak and frail bodies will be raised in power never again to suffer from sickness, disease, or decline. It's amazing. And then finally, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, spiritual here doesn't mean non-physical or immaterial. That would actually fly in the face of everything Paul's been saying so far. There is a resurrection of the physical flesh and blood body. So spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. It means that our bodies in the coming day are supernatural or spirit-empowered or spirit-animated and driven and empowered. Think about it. It was the Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation and brought life to God's world. It was the Spirit who, after three days in the grave, brought Jesus' decaying corpse to life. Likewise, brothers and sisters, it's the Spirit who will give our bodies life in the coming age, and that forevermore. Do you see how this is reasonable? Yes, I I know it's incredible, but it's not irrational or crazy. You're you're not being called to, to check out of your intellect. It actually makes sense. And Paul's got one more analogy he wants you to think of. Think about Adam and Jesus. Look at 45 through 49. And and I actually want to just cheat and start back in 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, lots of words there. But in truth, what he's saying is actually pretty simple. Adam and Christ teach us about the earthly body and the resurrection body. Throw your eyes back on the end of verse 44 and just look at what it says. It says, if there is a natural body, then there's a spiritual body. And now in verse 45, he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now, in English, it's hard to see, but in the original, it's clear The word for a natural body corresponds to the word for Adam becoming a living being. In other words, Adam is illustrative of the natural body. And the same is true with Christ. In the original, the word for spiritual body 
corresponds to the word for the last Adam becoming a life-giving spirit. In other words, Christ is illustrative of the spiritual body. Adam is illustrative of the natural body. Christ is illustrative of the spiritual body, which makes sense of the rest of the verses, 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Adam came first. Christ came second. Our natural body comes first. Our spiritual body comes second. 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Adam came from the earth. Jesus came from heaven. Our natural bodies come from the earth. Our spiritual bodies come from heaven. 48 and 49, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. This is, listen, I, I know I'm, I'm a pastor, so I, I theologically geek out, but, but this is, is mind-blowingly stupid, awesome, cool. Just as we have borne the image of the first, we will bear the image of the second. We are like Adam, friends. We are from the dust. We are decaying. And we will return to the dust. But whoever is in Christ will become like Christ. Incorruptible, imperishable, eternal, and glorious in our bodies. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. That is our future, beloved. Isn't it glorious? That's, that's Paul's point. So far, he's, he's aimed to persuade us that the resurrection of the body is reasonable and it's glorious. And now he shifts gears. And he tells us that it's also necessary. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, this does not mean that physical bodies can't inherit the kingdom. So don't read, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, and think, oh, 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 only our spirits can enter the kingdom. No. You have to read this in context, and his point is that our current bodies, our current perishable bodies cannot inherit the kingdom. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable that corresponds to flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. It's just saying that our perishable bodies cannot inherit the imperishable kingdom of Christ. So, that means we've got to be changed. And we will. Pick up in 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So Paul tells us a mystery. Now, mysteries in Scripture don't mean it's, it's, it's something that you can never figure out. A mystery in Scripture is something hidden for a time and then revealed when God deems appropriate. And so here's the mystery. Here's, here's the revelation. We will not all sleep, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. What's this change? The change is the change from our perishable bodies to our imperishable bodies. And we find out two things about this change. Number one, it will be immediate. It will happen in a moment. In the, in the twinkling of an eye. Friends, before you were born, you were knit together in your mother's womb for nine months. But when the time comes for us to enter the kingdom, our bodies are knit together in an instant. In the time that it takes for you to take a second glance. In the time that it takes you to blink your eye. That is the time it will take for God to change you. And your mortal flesh will take on immortality. It is instantaneous and it is miraculous. And we also learn when it will happen. It will happen at the last trump, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So here's the deal. At some point, and nobody knows when, Jesus will come back. He came the first time to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners by dying on the cross and rising again. He will come a second time to put an end to history as we know it and inaugurate his eternal and everlasting kingdom. I want to read for you another passage that describes this. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following to you. Listen to this passage, which says really the same thing as 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died. That You may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. This is the second coming. This is when Jesus comes back. And nobody knows when it will be, but when he comes back, his return will be announced by a trumpet blast. And when that trump blows, the heavens will crack wide open and several incredible things will take place. Number one, believers who have died will rise from the grave. Number two, believers who are alive will rise to meet the Lord in the air and at that moment and in just but a moment, we shall all be changed. What was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What was sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What was sown in weakness will be raised in power. What was sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. As we have borne the image of the first man, Adam, at this point, we will bear the image of the last man, Christ. Our mortal bodies will take on immortality. And when God does this, death itself will finally be defeated. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in 54, Paul quotes Isaiah 25, and he quotes Hosea 13. Isaiah 25 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away Every tear from all the faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is easy to understand. When Jesus returns, death itself is done away with. You know that verse. You've probably thought of Revelation 21.4, which also quotes that verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is when this comes to fruition. Now Hosea 13 is a bit harder to understand. In Hosea, in that text, it says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O death, where is your sting? And then he says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. This actually speaks about judgment coming upon the people of God for disobedience to his law. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Those are actually rhetorical questions. If God is for you, he can save you from judgment and death But since you have rebelled, 
compassion is hidden from his eyes. Now, why does Paul quote that here? This text is prophesying about death and judgment when Paul is glorying in the end of death and judgment. Because he wants you to remember why death won't be the end for you. And it's because of Christ's victory. The sting of death is sin. Sin separates us from God eternally. And the power of sin is the law. The law tells us what we should do, but because we're inclined to sin, when we find out what we should do, we run and go do the other thing that we shouldn't do, which then condemns us, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ died the death we deserve to die. Defeated death by rising from the grave. And when he comes, his victory, which is our victory, is complete. Death itself will be done away. Death itself will pass away into eternity. Death will be gone forever. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus. Matthew 13. Isn't this unspeakably awesome? Brothers and sisters, this is what awaits all who have placed their trust in the Lamb who died and rose. How should we respond? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Two things we should do in response. Number one, hold fast to the gospel. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable. Your mind should go back to 1 Corinthians 15.1. It's the beginning of the chapter. There, Paul said, Now I would remind you, of the brother, I would remind you brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you. Hold fast to the gospel. Some in Corinth weren't doing that. They were waffling on the resurrection. So Paul goes on to defend it, and then he concludes by saying, be steadfast, be unmovable, Hold fast to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let's not overcomplicate this. I charge you today to stake your life on the gospel and never, ever let anything chip away at your confidence in its truth and power. Sometimes outside voices come in and they, and they chip, chip, chip away at the gospel. 
Voices that tell us it's intolerant. Voices that tell us it's outdated. Voices that tell us it's foolish. Voices that tell us it's judgmental. Voices that tell us it's arrogant. Well, you know what? In the first century, it was a given for most people that the body was bad and the soul was good. And at the end of the day, the soul lives on. Well, the Corinthians were impacted by their culture, right? Some of them believe that. We'd be foolish to think that we're not impacted by our culture. And those voices that constantly come careening at us through every single media outlook. Are any voices in your ear eroding the confidence you have in the truth of the gospel? Are any voices in your ear eroding your clarity in the ethics and the worldview of the gospel? Are any voices in your ear eroding your confidence in the goodness of the gospel? Hold fast to the gospel. Do not let other voices blur the sharp boundaries of the gospel that make you stick out like a sore thumb at work or with your friends. Be happy to be different. Be happy to be weird. Be happy to be on the wrong side of history. We're actually on the right side of history. Be happy to be made fun of. Be happy to lose your job. The gospel is worth it. Hold fast to the gospel. And this brings us second. Live fully and gladly for Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Have you ever heard of that saying? It's a dumb saying. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I say it's a dumb saying. If you said it, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to mock you. But, but it's a dumb saying because Paul just made a say, Paul just spent the whole time talking about heaven. The new body, the new earth, and where we will going. And his understanding is that that's going to cause us to get to work. I want to charge you to be so heavenly minded so that you actually do some earthly good. Remember the parable of the virgins that Kirsten read so well for us. The parable of the talents that Kirsten read so well for us. His coming caused those virgins to be prepared and to ready themselves. The the upshot for us is this. We should be readying ourselves for his return. What does that look like? Does it look like Moving to India to preach the gospel. Maybe. But why don't you try something a lot more simple but a lot harder for most of you? Why don't you try being faithful and hardworking in the Christian life that God has actually given you right now? Why don't you try being faithful where you are 
right now? What roles and responsibilities has God given you? Are you honoring Christ in these things? Are you working hard as a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as an employee, as a church member? Do you realize that your labor in these things, these mundane, unimpressive things is significant? Do you realize that your labor in these things, these mundane things, this is a matter of obedience to Jesus? And then, do you realize that your labor will be rewarded? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most significant theologians in all of church history, reflected on reward in eternity as a matter of enjoyment of Christ. And he said, everyone will enjoy Christ, but but some will have cups that are bigger and some will have cups that are smaller. And those cups represent your enjoyment of Christ. And what you do here can actually lead to having a bigger cup, a bigger experience and fullness and enjoyment of the glory and the goodness of God. Now, everyone's cup will overflow. But don't you want to have the biggest possible cup you can have? Don't you want to enjoy the fullness of all that can be enjoyed in the coming day and to revel in the glory and goodness of God? Don't you want to maximize your enjoyment of the resurrection? I'm wondering if some of you just are hoping you barely squeak by. Let's not be satisfied with that. Do you know what you should do if you want to maximize your enjoyment of God in the coming day? Live gladly and fully for Him right now in all of the realms that God's given you. To my non-Christian friends, this is what you'll miss out on. This is what you'll miss out on. My hope for you is that you will recognize that Jesus Christ died the death you deserve to die and rose again and offers you forgiveness if you will but turn from your sin and trust in Him. And the glorious news of the gospel is that if you do that, You are promised a new body in a new world where sin and death will never, ever come knocking at your door. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.
for the future that is ours. We ask, Father, that we would hold fast to the gospel. And we ask, Father, that we would live gladly and fully for Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.